Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But when he returns, the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not he shed his blood for that individual. That's what's going to matter. And so when we stand before the throne, great throne, the great white throne one day, I submit to you today, we'll all have to stand before that throne. But his people are going to be viewed through the lens of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And that was perfect, flawless, undefiled. And when his people stand before God the Father one day, they're going to stand before him holy, blameless, and unreprovable in his sight. So now that we've observed that, we can establish, and we can establish the fact that when the Lord returns, praise God, he is not going to look at how his children are behaving to determine whether or not they're going to end up in heaven. He's going to look at how his son behaved. And he behaved perfectly. And he was sinless. And he was the Lamb of God which took away the sins of his elect people. Now, so now that we've established that, we can look at this parable through a different lens. We don't have to be terrified of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since this refers to the kingdom of God, this is talking about something else other than heaven Eternity is talking about the kingdom of God as we observe it and as we interact within it here on this earth. And so we're told that five of these young women were wise and five of them were foolish because they were not prepared for the coming of the Lord. Because the Lord doesn't just appear, is not going to just appear to us in his second coming. He appears to us in many different ways, hopefully on a daily basis. We're told that we can observe Him in creation. We can observe Him in the mighty things that He's created. I hope we observe Him in the worship service as we gather together to publicly celebrate His grace and His mercy and His goodness to us. I hope we see Him there. When He returns for the second time, you're not going to have to worry about whether or not you miss Him. That is going to be something that everybody sees. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because that is going to be an earth-shattering event. The skies will split and the clouds will part and there will be the massive earth-shaking sound of a trumpet. We're all going to know that He has come. We're not going to have to worry about missing that. Sometimes here in this earth, though, we can miss His coming. When He comes to walk amongst His people, to fellowship with His church, to walk with us in the quietness of the morning, in the peaceful beauty of the day, as the psalm says, if we're not prepared, He may come and slip away without us noticing. And that is our task as we go about our daily activities, as we come together to worship the Lord on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, we're to look for His coming. That's why we're told to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not what hour the Son of Man cometh. We don't know when He's going to come the second time. But we are also told to be diligent as we watch for Him on this earth. So at midnight in verse 6, 
There was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. So all of these young women are resting in the house because it's midnight. Now, some of you may be crazy and you may stay up until midnight every night and you may get up at 3.30 in the morning, but I can't do that. Generally, by most nights, I'm probably asleep unless it's a weekend or something like that. So it's late at night. All these young women have grown tired. And they're sitting in the house awaiting the coming of the bridegroom. And so at midnight, this cry goes up throughout the house. The bridegroom's here. He's come. We've waited for him all day. We don't know when he was going to come. He's walking down the road. We see him coming with all with his train, with his entourage, with all of these things that he's bringing for the bride. Look, he's coming down the road. And so everyone in the house wakes up. Perhaps the lights come on. You know, they they turn the lights on, they light their lamps and light goes out from that house and the doors open and there's music begins to play and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. But these young women that were supposed to go out and greet him, not all of them are ready because five of them have forgotten to fill their lamps with oil. They're not ready to go out with their lights and light the way for the bridegroom. And the fool is said unto the wise in verse 8, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. In other words, perhaps they didn't fill their oil lamps all the way up. Or maybe they left them burning during the time that they were waiting. And now, when they were supposed to go out and light the way for the bridegroom, they don't have any oil for their lamps. And so they come to the wise that still have oil, and they say, Hey, give us some of your oil. We don't have anything to light our lamps with. But the wise give a very straightforward and understandable answer. In verse 9, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. So the wise say, We would be glad to give you some of our oil, but we may not have enough to do our job if we do. If we give you the rest of our oil, what are we going to light our lamps with? So they give them a reasonable answer. They say, do you want to greet the bridegroom? Go out to the merchants which sell oil and buy some oil to fill up your lamps and then light them and come back. But think about it, it's midnight. Are there going to be any merchants with open stalls that will sell them oil to fill up their lamps? No, they're not. So their lamps have gone dark and they don't have any immediate way to access what they need. And so they miss the penultimate moment, the moment when the bride comes, when the bridegroom comes to celebrate with his bride. And so the foolish went to buy and the bridegroom came and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage and the door was shut. Because you see, the kingdom of God is compared multiple times. The kingdom of heaven is compared multiple times to a feast, to a marriage. Because I believe Christ, in His mind, He wanted to use an analogy that we would understand to symbolize how joyous and how great of occasion it is when the people of God come together and they wait for the pending appearance of the bridegroom. Because it's a joyous occasion. But these other five young women, they just were not ready. 
And afterward came also the virgin saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Or the five foolish young women who didn't remember to keep their lamps filled came to the shut door of the marriage of the house of marriage. And they said, let us in. We want to come celebrate this moment. We have come to fulfill our task. We have come to welcome the bridegroom. But he answered and said, Verily, I say unto you, I I know you not, or I don't know who you are. So perhaps some hours later, while this great moment of feasting is going on in this household, these five other young women, they come and they start beating on the door. And can you imagine the bridegroom comes to the door and he opens it and these five young women are standing there and he has no idea who they are. He's like, I didn't see you when I got here. You know, I think you must have the wrong house or, you know, you have you have chosen the wrong address or something to that effect, because I don't know who you are. And then Jesus issues the admonition, watch, therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour wherein the son of man cometh. And he's reiterating the lesson he just taught. He says, remember. You don't remember, you don't know exactly when Jesus Christ will make His glorious appearance. We're not to be afraid of that. We're not to be afraid of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that we could be judged for our obedience or disobedience when He returns. We already discussed that. But see, we want to be able to go in to the marriage feast of the kingdom of God. We want to be able to be there when the bridegroom makes his appearance. We want to be standing by the road when he comes walking in with his gifts and his entourage and all the other things that he is bringing to acknowledge the bride and how precious she is to him. We want to be there. And so the Lord has exhorted all of his children in a figurative sense to keep their lights burning, to stand with lamps that are full of oil so that we could hold our lights high to commemorate His pending arrival. But there's some things that often happen when we don't. And we're going to come back to the story of the five foolish young women. Because I'm going to tell you where we can go to buy more oil. But let's observe what happened to them when they forgot to fill up their lamps initially. And in order to do that, we're going to turn over to Revelation, the third chapter. And in Revelation, the third chapter, we're going to read about a group of people that forgot to watch. They slumbered directly before the imminent arrival of the bridegroom. And some, and some very detrimental things happened to them. And so the Lord, He's reminding them And he's encouraging them to go out and buy more oil. There is oil available to them and the worship of God. There is oil available to fill our lamps and the fellowship that we have with like-minded believers. There is oil for us to take and to fill our lamps with. 
Because there are ways that we can prepare our minds and our hearts before the coming of the bridegroom. Whether that's in prayer before we gather together in the house of God. Whether that's you know, engaging in the song service. Whether that's praying for an open door of utterance. There are many things that we can do to continue to fill our lamps so that our lights might shine brightly. That's a common image that we observe in you know, American Christian culture today. We hear that phrase a lot. Let your light shine. You know, that's a very simple phrase. It's used so commonly that it's almost cliche now. But that is a very important thing to remember when we're awaiting the imminent coming of the bridegroom. That we are to reflect our earnest expectation for His presence. We are to reflect the fact that we long for His coming because we want Him to be with us. We want the blessing of His presence during a hard work day when it feels like everybody's being hard-headed and just making your day terrible. We want His presence during that, do we not? I know you've all experienced it. We want His presence when we come home in the evening. You may be tired after a day of work. You may be tired from a long day of teaching your children. You feel irritable and you don't want to sit down and ask a prayer before a meal and actively engage with your family. You know, we need His presence before we come together and worship in a public way. That He could bless our minds to be focused upon Him when we come together to worship. And so in Revelation chapter 3, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is recording the words of Christ to the church at Sardis. And he says, beginning in verse 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis writes, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, that is a word picture which has characterized the revelation narrative up to this point because he's speaking to these seven churches. And he says to the church at Sardis, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come upon thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Are y'all hearing this familiar language this morning? Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled in their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So this group of people... They have a reputation of being a living group of people. That is to say, they are physically living. Their hearts are beating. Their minds are are working. They go about their daily tasks of work and entertainment. And they are just a living group of people. They are alive. But spiritually, Christ, Christ says, you're dead. You've forgotten a few things. Because we're told in John chapter 10... That the thief cometh not but to kill and to steal and to destroy. But Christ comes that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. See, Christ comes suddenly as a thief. 
The thief does not announce himself to those whose house he is breaking into. That would be a headline news story. If a thief came to someone's house with the intention of robbing them of their worldly possessions or perhaps harming them, and he stood at the door and he said, Hey, just to let you know, I'm here with the intention of taking everything that you have, I'm going to tie you up and put you in the living room floor, and then I'm going to systematically take everything that you have in this house and put it in the moving truck that I have outside, and then I'm going to go sell it. I just wanted to let y'all know. No, a thief doesn't operate like that, does, does he? He slips in the back window, or he uses a crowbar to open the front door, and he slips in unannounced. Jesus Christ comes as a thief. He clarifies with us that I don't come as natural thieves do to kill and to steal and to destroy. He says, I'm a thief that comes with abundant life. I'm someone who comes suddenly, without warning, bringing life. And so these people forgot that Jesus came as the life-giving thief. And because of that, they've missed His coming. They've missed His appearance. And they have become as if they were dead. Because they forgot to celebrate and welcome the imminent coming of, strangely enough, the thief that brings life. So they have a reputation of being living, of being living but they are dead. So John exhorts them, be watchful. That is to say, regardless of whether or not you've missed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ here in time, in your church building, in your lives, you may have been blinded by all of these worldly distractions which keep us, which keep you and often keeps them and keeps myself on a daily basis from seeing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But He could come again. He will come again. That's where the oil comes into play. Because regardless of whether or not those five foolish women did not have oil in their lamps when the bridegroom came, he will come again. And so that's what the church at Sardis is being reminded. Be watchful because he will come again and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. He says there are a group of things in your church that have about kicked the bucket. They're dying fast. And he was like, before they die completely, I want you to strengthen the things that remain. The things which are not dead yet, I want you to bolster them up. I want you to support them. And I want you to be watchfully awaiting the coming of the life-giving thief. He says in verse 3, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. He's saying, if you don't watch, I may come at midnight, when everyone's asleep, and we've burned all the oil out of our lamps, and we're all weary and tired, and He may come and go as the life giver, as the one who brings life, without us even realizing that He was there. And He says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with Me in white, for they are worthy. White was a... Isn't white 
a common color that we see at weddings? What color is the bride's dress? It's white. And not only many time, most of the time, the vast majority of the time in our European culture is the bride's dress white. White's often a supplementary color that you would use at weddings. Some of y'all are going to correct me about that later because I don't even know if white and blue match sometimes. But that's a common color at weddings, is it not? Because it represents purity. It's a color which, you know, it has bright, vibrant tones. It represents the atmosphere of celebration that we often feel at weddings. And the culture of Jesus and the culture that was still ongoing and the geographical location from which John was writing also prized white because it's vibrant. You know, it's pure. It's washed clean. You know, we're told that the Lord would wash us clean. He would wash us white. He'd wash our consciences of the memory, the crippling memory of past sins and failures. And He would make us worthy to serve Him. And John points this out to the people at Sardis. He says, there's a group of people in your church that still have on their white garments. They're still clothed for the wedding feast. They're the ones that are ready. They are clothed and they are ready to stand beside the way with their lighted lamps and commemorate the coming of the bridegroom. They are watching. And he says, he that overcometh, or he that continues to watch, there may be a season where we forget to be watchful. There may be a season where we sleep and we slumber and our vessels run out of oil. But the Lord in His grace and His mercy, He has always given us another opportunity to overcome. He has given us another opportunity to fill our lamps with oil. He has given us another opportunity to wash our garments white as we come up to the marriage feast of the kingdom of God. And he says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now we read about several books of life in the New Testament. We're going to read about one in Revelation chapter 20 to understand the differences between some of these books. And John, we mentioned this earlier, the great white throne. And John continues writing in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 11. And he says, And I saw a great white throne. What a vision. And him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. You know what that is to say? He says, when the Lord shows His face for that final time, the earth is going to melt with a fervent heat and it will be no more. Peter tells us of that because when the Lord comes and shows His glorious face, His face of victory and His face of judgment to take His bridegroom home for the final time, this earth as we know it is going to be destroyed. And so this individual who sat on the great white throne The earth fled away before His face. The heavens fled away before Him. And there was found no place for them. That is to say, they were gone. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were to be written in the books according to their works. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now again, is this something that the child of God who feels love for the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart and who feels conviction over their sins and who would read a passage like this and quake in righteous fear over their own sins. Is this a passage they need to be afraid of? No. The child of God who would read this passage and feel the righteous fear of God in their heart, that is someone who the Lord has died for. And when they stand before Christ... When they stand before God and they are judged according to their works, again, they're going to be judged according to the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, which were perfect, infallible, and without error. But this is the book of life that can be associated with these eternal you know, and final events that we read about. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That's a hard principle for us sometimes soft human beings who don't have a proper conception of the righteous and infallible justice of God. We don't like to think about the fact that there might be people who would spend eternity apart from God. But again, the blessed truth of the gospel is those which are in in righteous fear of that. I'm not talking about a fear which comes about as a, a result of punishment or fear that comes about as a result of pain or maybe the fear that someone feels when they are unrepentant but sitting in prison and waiting on their sentence. But someone who feels conviction over the sins which would set them apart from God. That person is not going to have to fear this scene that scene is going to be one of victory. And that scene, I believe we'll see this. The Lord is going to have to wipe away some tears. The Lord's going to have to wipe away some tears that come about as a result of the righteous joy that we will feel because of His victory. But in Revelation chapter 3, we are not reading about that book. And we will, in the time remaining, we'll read about a passage which tells us of that book. And then we're going to make a momentary connection back to the parable that we read. Because in Exodus chapter 32, Moses uses, essentially uses the phrase, the book of life. And he has found himself in a situation where he has gone up to, into Mount Sinai to receive the tablets of the law from God Himself. And the people had begun to despair of His return because they looked up at the mountain and they saw the cloud circling about it and they saw the lightning and the thunder echoing at its crest and they said, Moses has gone up into the presence of God and He's been killed. There's no point in us sitting around and waiting on His return. And so they went to Aaron and they said, Make us a God. Provide us with a God. And so Aaron melts down their gold and he forms the statue of a golden calf, which they immediately proceed to worship. But they don't worship that idol 
and the way that the Lord has called us to worship, you know, in dignity and, and solemnness and righteous fear and meekness and humbleness of heart. No, they worship this idol by throwing an absolute humdinger of a party. And all the people of Israel, they go, in, they go into celebration. And they're dancing and they're feasting and they went up to play, as we're told in the New Testament. Now that's a derogatory term. That doesn't mean they went out in the yard to play in the sandbox. That means they went out to engage in all manner of carnal pursuits which brought dishonor and shame to the name of the Lord. And Moses, he goes back down and you know Joshua tells him as he's coming back down. And Joshua is still watching. He's still awaiting. He's still awaiting Moses' return. The moment where he would come down from the mountain. And the comment is made, it sounds as if the noise of war is going up from the camp. It sounds like there's a big battle going on down there. And they end up finding out, no, it's not the sound of war. It's the sound of a riotous party that the children of Israel are throwing in honor of this golden God that Aaron made out of a bunch of earrings and bracelets that they brought out of the land of Egypt. And so the Lord is prepared to annihilate them and wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses goes before him in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 31 and says, and, and it says, And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, bought me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. This is a different book of life. Moses is not challenging the fact that the Lord might somehow wipe him from his roster of eternal salvation. Moses is saying, no, we are in danger of your temporal judgment. We have fallen into sin. We have forgotten that there is a God in heaven, that he brought us out of Egypt, and that he has given us the law, and we are in danger of being wiped off the face of the earth of experiencing the temporal judgment that becomes that comes about as a result of us not being watchful. Don't weary of the coming of the, of the Lord. His coming is imminent. We don't know when He might come. And He's gracious and He's merciful. And often in the very moment when we despair of His presence, that is when He shows His face. And the reason He does that is because we are oftentimes ungrateful human beings and we forget that we need the presence of the Lord. We need Him to come down and walk amongst us as we worship and as we go about our daily lives. And so, when we can't see Him, when we've wandered away from His face, we often despair of His presence. We forget about the fact that He has promised to be with us. We forget about the fact that Moses, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, will return down from the mountain. He will come down from the presence of God and He will be with us in a very direct and powerful way. And so in the context of Revelation, in the context of these five foolish young women and these five wise young women we read about, we are given the exhortation to be watchful the five foolish young women are told, watch. The church of Sardis is told to watch. 
The children of Israel should have been watching. Any day now, Moses was to walk down from that mountain as an emissary of God to provide them with the Lord's words carved in stone. But they just, they just despaired. They looked about at these chaotic circumstances and the thunder and the lightning and the wind and the booming voice of God issuing from the mountain. And they said, Moses has gone up into that mountain and God has killed him. He's never coming back. So we'll make us a new God. No, the return of Moses was imminent. Moses was coming back. The return of the Lord is is imminent. The showing of the Lord's face is imminent. And we are called to watch for that. Because the kingdom of God is a glorious marriage feast. No, it's still, the kingdom of God established by God. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. But it's made up of imperfect people. We have problems in the church oftentimes because the church is made up of sinners. We have problems in the kingdom of God because the church is composed of sinners. For that reason, we often have issues inside of it. And the Lord has not come to take His bridegroom home with Him in perfection and glory. Because Revelation tells us, John sees a vision of the bridegroom of the Lord, the bridegroom and the bride coming down in all perfection, and they meet together in perfect fellowship, unhindered by sin and unhindered by error. And they fellowship in that way for all of eternity. We are able to experience a small portion of that as we go about our interactions one with another on a daily basis. And the public worship of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes and He shows His face. And He blesses us with the presence of His Spirit. That is a coming for which we are called to be watchful. He comes as a thief in the night that brings life. He doesn't come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But we ought to be longing for the coming of the life giver. Because He is the one that brings oil to light our lamps. He is the one that is able to wash us and clothe us in white garments. As we close, we're going to read one more passage from Joel, the second chapter. Beginning in verse 17, we're told, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? This is the same cry that Moses uttered before God for the people of Israel. He said, Blot not our names from thy book. No, he wasn't talking about God's eternal book. That book is only openable by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is not a man, there is not a power, there is not a principality that could take your name out of that book. Christ has placed it there. And He has promised us on the basis of who He is as God and His infallibility as our Lord and Savior that it will remain there. And He will honor that promise. On the final day, in the final days. And so, in verse 18, 
Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove you far off from you, the northern army, and drive you, him into a land barren and desolate. He will take our enemies away. He will take away the enemies of sin and death that we have to deal with. He's going to take away the enemy of coronavirus. He's going to take away the enemy of those who would seek to see the church of the living God wiped off the face of the earth. And those will be but a bad memory, if I can use that phrase. Those will be no more. They won't be even a bad memory. They won't, they'll just be a reminder of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will provide His people with corn and wine and oil. Fill up your lamps this morning. Maybe this has served in some small way to refill a lamp which may have gone out. I'll admit mine goes off. Mine goes out. And I run out of oil more frequently than it should. But the Lord has given us an avenue to replenish that. To once again hold up our lamps and welcome the coming of the bridegroom. And be clothed in our garments of the marriage feast once again. So if there is anything, any verse that we could take away this morning, it would be that phrase that recurs so often through the Old Testament. Watch ye therefore. We just don't know when He may show His face of grace and mercy to us on a daily basis.